This is the Man Patriot Podcast, Episode 8. Hi everyone, welcome to the Man Patriot Podcast. Hope you guys had a great week. Right now I'm sitting down here uh, recording this podcast and I've got a lot to get off my chat today. Okay guys, so obviously, again, this week has not been a good week. As you saw with the developments of the expropriation of land without compensation and so forth, and also the announcement that the national minimum wage will be effective from the 1st of January 2019. So if you are young, unemployed, and you have no skills, it's going to be very difficult for you to get a job. Companies are already budgeting for this, and they're going to take the necessary actions to ensure that their costs still stay low. As for unions, they will celebrate this because that means that um, their members' jobs are more protected because they don't have to worry about outside competition because the minimum wage prices them out. If you want to know more about the minimum wage and how it actually is destructive, you can listen to episode 5 of this podcast. Okay, so if you like this podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by making financial contributions. You can do so on uh, patreon.com. The link is uh, patreon.com forward slash manpatria. And that is for people who would like to make monthly contributions. For those who like to make one-time contributions, you can tip me on PayPal. I'll provide the link for that below in the description box and also in the info box on um youtube and soundcloud respectively but again if you cannot contribute financially it's not the end of the world you can share this with your friend you can give it a like you know just share it and you know spread the word about men patria and what's actually being discussed on this podcast okay and also um again you can follow me on social media you can follow me on twitter you can follow me on facebook on instagram and so forth i'll provide the links in the description boxes and so forth and yes, um, I'm also doing another challenge. I call this challenge the Path to Manhood Challenge. This is a challenge where I aim to get back into shape, where I want to decrease my body fat percentage. So I'll be gymming and I'll be giving updates every day on this. So if you want to see those updates, you can um, follow me on Instagram and those updates will be there. And yes, it'll be very interesting to see what you guys actually have to say about it. Okay, so in the next segment, I'm going to be discussing how socialism destroyed Venezuela and how free market capitalism assisted Chile in becoming a great nation um, by increasing its GDP and by increasing its prosperity. So you're going to love this next segment. So brace yourselves. It's going to be good. 
Um, it's going to be very informative and also at the same time, you're going to enjoy it. And I think this is going to be a podcast that you would love to share with your friends. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to be reading two articles. There's going to be one article which shows or discusses rather um, how socialism destroyed Venezuela. And I'm going to be reading another article on how free market capitalism assisted Chile in its rise. Okay, so I'm going to first start with the bad stuff first and then I'm going to end it off with the good stuff. So let's start off with the bad stuff. And this bad stuff article, it's not a, well, it's not a bad article, it's a good one. And it was written by... Vinnie Marshall, and it is from the website called thinkliberty.com. And the name of the article is, Dude, what happened to Venezuela? Yeah, what happened to Venezuela? Remember in 2010 when uh, Julius Malema, Floyd Shibambu, and all these guys, they all went to Venezuela and they uh, were praising Venezuela for how it um, you know, how it, um, how its state-run economy is doing well. And uh, this was back in 2010. This was when Julius Malema was still the president of the ANC Youth League and Floyd Shibambu was the national executive member of the ANC Youth League. And um, they actually met with a lot of these, uh, they met with the vice president of Venezuela at that time, the person's name was Elias Jawa uh, or Huayua, I don't know. Sorry, because I can't pronounce these Spanish names. And if you're listening from these Spanish countries, I apologize, okay? And uh, they, yeah, they just sat, discussed, had meetings, and then they came back. And then they said, yes, um, Venezuela is a prime example in how the state can run its economy uh, efficiently and effectively. But obviously, uh, seven years later, or let me say, rather say eight years later, the country is in economic ruin. As I said before, people are eating their pets in Venezuela. People are, well, let me put it this way. They already ate their pets. Um, people went into zoos. Um, it's hard to get simple goods in Venezuela, like buying toilet paper and so forth. And, um, you know, people that are once middle class are now poor because they can't afford basic goods and services so it's very interesting now that you don't hear guys like julius malema and floyd shibambu uh, talking about venezuela and using them as an example it failed completely but still they stick to this idea of socialism even though it failed they still stick to it that's the government we're in and well not wouldn't say the government but that's the country we live in that's the world we live in doesn't matter how many times something has failed um, people still are hell-bent on implementing it. I don't know why, but that's just the name of the game. Okay, so let's start reading this article. Okay, the economic issue with Venezuela comes from a recession gap. If you're not familiar with the term, it's caused when there's a gap between the country's actual and potential production economically. Every modern economy model being used in the world today is top-down. That means GDP is your economic North Star. 
The issue with Venezuela specifically is the financial needs of the government social well government social programs. All right, and those social programs surpass the capability of GDP. I think we all know it's more complicated than just that, though. Let's take a deep dive and try to find out what's really going on with the economy of Venezuela. Okay, so the first section is titled The Free Market Economy of Venezuela. So from 1920 up until 1960, Venezuela had a booming economy and a limited government. As a result, it had the highest growth rate and the lowest levels of inequality in South America. So it's very interesting that uh, in countries where there's greater economic freedom, there's less inequality. Now, I have stated in my last podcast, I don't think inequality is an issue, in my opinion. Um, the reason why I'm saying that is because if you look at countries where there's great economic freedom, the poorest people have have decent goods in their house. They have TVs, they have internet, they have, um, you know, uh, laptops. I mean, stuff that, you know, that many people would want. So you, so a poor man in the United States, maybe a middle-class South African, if you think about it, based purely on um, the fact that they're in, a, in an economy that has um, greater economic freedom. So it's very interesting that we see that. But even though inequality has been there ever since the beginning of the universe, I don't think it's something that needs to be solved. I think rather what needs to be addressed is how can you get the people at the bottom of the economic rung um, a chance to escape poverty or to climb up the economic ladder. All right, so the article continues. Venezuela was supporting the highest GDP in its history. However, after a rise in oil prices in the 70s, Venezuela experienced a per capita income increase of 40%. By the time the 80s hit, there were other players in the game and Saudi Arabia entered the market and began producing a large amount of oil at low prices, driving the global prices down to compete. This conflict with Saudi Arabia is a recurring OPEC issue. As a result, the per capita income decreased by 25% with the market soft and the economy feeling pressure. So I remember when I went to Mauritius um, in September. And what is very interesting, one of the tour guides told me that, um, you know, they Mauritius, well, the main export of Mauritius is sugarcane. And when Brazil started producing sugarcane, um, you know, they were not getting as much as they used to because they were selling sugarcane for a much lower price. And then they had to change um, their main exports. So they had to create other industries within Mauritius so that um, people could still have jobs and the economy could still run. So as you can see, they're starting to build a, a massive financial sector and uh, that should assist them. But they, they recognized that, but Venezuela didn't. So, the article, so in the next um, section... There's another article called The Move to an Authoritarian Socialist State. So Hugo Chavez had his eyes on ruling Venezuela early on. As in 1992, he staged a coup and failed. This had landed Chavez in jail. After being there for two years, he was released under the condition he retired from the military. Fast forward to five years after his release and Chavez is elected, in, elected into rule. Literally hours after being sworn in, Chavez moves on his intentions on adjusting the constitution, which was met with wide public support. 
When Chavez took over in 1999, despite the Saudi competition and its effects on prices, the oil industry was still producing at a surplus. Chavez used a large amount of revenue, including this surplus, to fund the many socialist programs he built his empire of support on. As time passed, Chavez accumulated fanatic support among the poor and lower class. He changed the constitution in 2000 and solidified his longevity in the position of ruler, giving himself the option of re-election. In 2002, there was another coup. He remained in power and was restored to the presidential palace, but he was desperate to garner more social support. To do this, he doubled down on his social policies and attempted to drum up support in the same manner he had done previously. In 2012, Chavez won the election to stay in power due to the loyalty gained from the collective accumulation of his support. Although crime was a large issue and inflation was beginning to take its toll, the corruption inherent in politics that Chavez has publicly voiced that he had fight to abolish had grown a new flavor but was still rampant nonetheless. Mismanagement of funds towards state and large private industry were also starting to change the landscape of the Venezuelan economy. So the next um, section is foreign policy issues. Okay, so the, the article uses some vulgar language, so I'm just going to bleep it out. Throughout all of this, one thing was for sure. The Chavez regime was effing terrible with foreign policy. The international policy of Venezuela was two things, oil and socialism. The desire to control as much of the oil industry as possible with strategic operations is made clear when you look a bit further. One third of the actions that were taken were once to keep friendly relationships in the oil industry that strategically benefited Venezuela. One third was to eliminate what Chavez saw a corrupt political body from the trade conversation, largely most of North America, as a means to ensure strategic benefits in the oil industry. The last one third was social outreach. International campaigns aimed at helping relieve situations for those in surrounding Latin countries who had fallen on hard times. All of this while the programs on Venezuela's own soil started going sour. 2000 marked the beginning of the end, and battling crime became second fiddle to domestic and international social agendas. The further the economy falls, the harder Venezuela's leadership leans on their talent for drumming up social support by way of the social government programs. These foreign relations, built on exclusive importance of the mono-commodity focus which was oil, of the country, creates a situation for the country much like a drug addiction. By putting on horse blinders and focusing all your efforts on one area, it comes at the cost of effort towards other areas. This kind of approach only further solidifies dependency on the commodity and eliminates the viability of other possible opportunities. This is a dangerous position. If anything happens that threatens the economy, or the drug for the sake of the previous metaphor, it can potentially cause a recession or a withdrawal. The death of Hugo Chavez and promotion of Nicolas Maduro. So before I continue there, I just want to mention that, you know, Venezuela's reliance on oil was its downfall. And the fact that also at the same time, um, you know, it did not focus on other areas. And this also led to its downfall and the fact that there was not really much economic freedom and more um, emphasis on giving people free stuff as opposed to freedom this also assisted in venezuela failing okay the article continues on the 5th of march 
Hugo Chavez passed away and someone was needed to step in and take his place. Who better than the head of foreign policy, Nicolas Maduro? And wouldn't you know it, the same individual who was so passionate about solving problems for the disenfranchised abroad was on a mission out of the gates to double down and reap some of the benefits that came with Chavez's approach he had witnessed for so long. Mismanagement of funds towards the mono commodity dependence plays a very large part of why things crumbled and continue to crumble. It's foolish in the first place to put so much of your economic feasibility into an exclusive single industry with confidence. It's another entirely to then ignore the maintenance and repair of a said critically important industry. The excessive spending of the social welfare programs in attempts to drum up social support led to deficits of revenue available for the improvement of the Venezuelan oil fields, industrial maintenance and industry business obligations. These oversights have led to the state-managed oil company, PDVSA, neglecting financial obligations to third parties that assist in the production of oil. As a result, the compound damage of causal effects continues to gain cumulative force in its damage to the Venezuelan economy. Okay, so um, very interesting. Uh, If you look at South Africa, just drawing parallels, it's quite clear that if you look at many of the of the companies that are owned by the government these government these are companies are very inefficient so if you look at south african airways always getting bailed out by the government if you look at escom again also needing bailouts run inefficiently they can't even keep the lights on and this is a this is a result of the governments running these companies because these companies are not run to gain profits but they are run as social programs and as a result of that, they become these cash-eating machines. And no one they don't want to sell them for whatever reason. I don't know why. But I think the best option is to sell these companies because they'll provide more to the economy when they do that. But they don't want to do that because, again, they want control. As you saw with this whole Gupta scandal, ESCOM was used as a means by the Guptas to actually gain some funds so that they could actually um, buy certain companies and so forth, where ESCOM actually bought more coal than they needed from a specific company just to assist the Guptas in um, taking money out of the country. And this is what happens with these state-owned companies. And then, you know, people want to talk about um, Steinhoff and the scandal there. But, I mean, there's scandals in all these state-owned companies. From I mean, if you look at Prasa, Danel, Eskom, South African Airways, I mean, the list goes on and on. And... You know, people are worried about Steinhoff. I mean, I'm not trying to justify Steinhoff. I'm not trying to justify what happened there. That is corruption. And yes, um, you know, if people if, if they broke any laws, if anyone broke any laws in that company, then they should um, face uh, the full justice of the law. But again, it happens so little in these private companies, but in government institutions, it's a regular thing. And it's so regular that we have come so desensitized towards it that, hey, you know, no one cares. That's what I have noticed about this. Okay, the article continues. The power of inflation. And oh, the inflation. Inflation often happens as a result of various sources. Activity in the central bank, government activities such as increasing the money supply, taxes, minimum wage laws, tariffs, and the list goes on. What flavor is Venezuela dealing with? All of the above and the result was a sharp decline in the nation's currency value. 
when you start to consider trading for commodities, things that were once inexpensive and easy to attain are now priced out of the range of affordability for most of the citizenship. To give you an idea of the damage inflation uh, can do, consider this. In 2008, Venezuelan's foreign reserves were valued at $42 billion. In 2016, its value was $12 billion. All right, so just to let you know, that's a 71% decrease in value. All right, in eight years, 71% decrease in value. To add to this blissful economic situation, oil prices are now dropping, and what was once the powerhouse of Venezuelan economy is now slowing down. As a result, the lowered oil prices have caused an inflation on the price of Venezuelan oil as a struggle to not only even generate profit, but also meet the financial obligations tied to the industry. And just, so I just want to stop there quickly, you know, talking about the issue of inflation. The reason why we have the Reserve Bank is in South Africa is to actually control inflation and to have sustainable growth. Now, in South Africa, there has been attempts or suggestions that the mandate of the Reserve Bank is changed. Now, we saw what happened in 2017 with the public protector, Busisi uh, Mkwebane. She made a, sorry, Busisi Mkwebane. She made a, um, a report about um, an apartheid era bailout that was given to Absa Bank. And um, the Reserve Bank paid Absa about 1.25, well, well 1.125 billion rands. And um, she, in her report, she described this as a bailout for Bancorp. And uh, she said that Absa had to pay that money back to the Reserve Bank. And uh, she also suggested in the same report that the mandate of the Reserve Bank be changed. So according to, this, according to an article on Times Live, um, it states that she proposes changing the bank's focus from implementing monetary policy and targeting inflation to focusing on the social economic well-being of citizens. Now on paper, that sounds good. But in reality, that's the dumbest thing that you can ever say. The Reserve Bank's purpose is not to do that. But whenever you get these people, these social justice warriors who get into positions of power and they think that um, the Reserve Bank is like the enemy or something like that, they think that the mandate needs to be changed. And then they think it must be changed to a more social economic one. But the original mandate of the Reserve Bank improves social economic well-being by, by catering for inflation and so forth. And I think that really, I mean, if someone says that, then they're totally ignorant of the effects and the implications of the Reserve Bank's um, actions when they decide interest rates and so forth. But uh, it didn't end there. Um, in the same year, uh, APSA decided to take the public protector to court. They, they wanted to challenge this, and they challenged this on many grounds. And uh, Absa were not happy about this, of course. That's why they took it to court. And um, they contested the actions or the recommendations made by the public protector on several grounds. Uh, some saying that the, one of them was that the 
public protector cannot make um, constitutional changes. So the Reserve Bank has a mandate and that mandate is defined in the constitution. And um, if the public protector makes a, makes a recommendation, the public protector cannot say that the constitution has to be changed or something. They can't do that because that falls outside of her mandate. In fact, um, only parliament can decide to change the constitution and no one else. So they went to court and eventually they won. And the judge ordered that the public protector pays 15% of the legal costs in her personal capacity and the rest had to be paid by her office. And what is also very interesting is that it didn't end there. It didn't end there. The ANC are hell-bent on implementing the National Democratic Revolution. And what I find very interesting is that uh, this year, the 6th of March, okay, it wasn't the 6th of, was it the 6th of March? Um, they wanted to put a, um, a motion in place to discuss the mandate and the independence of the Reserve Bank. So, or automatically you can see what you have to notice about some of these socialist um, governments is that they want to take control over sectors of the economy. With Venezuela, it was oil, you know, and um, they, I think they also took over the Reserve Bank there or the Central Bank. I'm not sure. I need to just check that. But it's always an element of control. There's always an element. They want to control something. Whatever it is, they need to control it because they're saying that, oh no, if we don't control this, then the public does not benefit, which is absolute rubbish. It's the, it's the other way around. The only reason why they want to control it is because they want to exploit the funds and the resources of whatever they're trying to control for their own benefit. So this motion was proposed by an, um, well, not the, not the motion, but the discussion on the Reserve Bank was proposed by an ANC MP by the name of Joan Fubbs. Or was it Joan Fubbs? I'm not sure. I apologize. And she proposed to discuss the full public ownership of the Reserve Bank while at the same time acknowledging the role, mandate, and independence of the bank. Now, when this was due to be discussed, Moody's was in the country, one of the ratings agencies, and the Reserve Bank governor, Lisecha Chaniacho, told these guys in parliament that they had to remove this motion off the business of the day. Because if Moody's finds out that this was actually discussed, they're going to decrease our rating because they know people know that when a reserve bank is taken over by the government trust me nothing good happens afterwards as long as the reserve bank remains independent we're in good hands just to let you know um the reserve bank governor um lisecha well lisecha Chaniaho, he previously said that the banks or the reserve bank's primary objective is to protect the value of the currency in the interest of balanced and sustainable growth. So if it's independent and it keeps that mandate, then inadvertently it's looking after the social economic well-being of citizens within, within the country. But according to the public protector, 
she made an irresponsible statement saying that um, they should move, they should take its focus away from implementing monetary policy and targeting inflation to focusing on social economic well-being of citizens. If she knew and understood the mandate of the Reserve Bank, she would have not made that statement. Simple as that. So just to let you know, the Reserve Bank, they ensure that inflation does not go off the charts and um, they're doing a good job at doing that. And Venezuela, they didn't do that and things just went downhill. So let me just continue reading that article. Okay. But the article continues. It's because of the dire economic situation, the government had to act in a way that it felt was flexible in the face of a challenging situation. Enact critical regulations and restrictions. The significant increase in the cost of basic goods put what was once common and easy to attain into something only attainable by the wealthy. The state attempted repair by way of controlling the price of goods inside supermarkets in an attempt to offer citizens fair prices for basic goods. The restriction created a negative incentive for, provi for providers of said goods. Since there is no capital to gain from such behavior, suppliers to supermarkets simply did not sell their products to said supermarkets, and what followed were widespread shortages of resources. It's not commonplace for Venezuelans to stand in long lines as they wait for chances to procure items that, that fill their basic needs, like bread. So, talking about controlling prices, um, I did a podcast on why we do not need universal health care. And the universal health care uh, system that South Africa intends to implement is a single-payer one, and they're going to try control the prices of uh, medical assistance or medical care. And uh, what I also mentioned is that when the government controls something like this, they are going to create negative incentives. So if doctors can see that providing, well, the price that the government is willing to pay for the health care they provide does not cover the costs of, um, of providing that health care, they will just shut down their shops and or shut down their doctor's rooms and practices and go somewhere else, go to another country where they're able to operate in a, in, in a private manner. And what happens is that that's going to create a shortage of medical doctors. And when there's a shortage of medical doctors, what are you going to get? You're going to get long lines at the hospital. And already we're seeing that in some of these government hospitals already. And the national health insurance is going to make that worse. When you try to centrally plan things, it fails. It always, always fails. For some reason, the market forces, the invisible hand of the market force somehow crushes these centrally planned economies. Okay, next uh, paragraph. So this is the closing paragraph and I'm going to read this with a bit of passion because I think it was well written. Listen to this. Summary, what have we learned? I believe there are a few interesting things we can take away from this situation. The sun will set. The sun will rise and state intervention into economic industries retard growth, stagnate competition and annihilate innovation. In a more open market, the state can get away with doing a little more here and there when the resources that contribute to GDP are various and wide ranging.
in a stage in a situation where you rely on one single industry the most foolish thing that can be done is to put that industry into the hands of an entity that historically and consistently manipulates and suspends growth which is the government again look what we saw look at escom look at saa look at denel look at sabc look at all those companies look at all of them all making losses all not doing well and who are they controlled by who's the shareholder the government okay point two when the government plays the part of the mechanic lifts the hood up and starts tinkering with the engine you are going to have a bad time if you are paying attention during the article you'll notice that every single step was taken by the state to control the desired outcome for people it's bad enough to base your economic environment on a top-down approach that relies on GDP. It's even worse when that top-down approach rests completely on a mono-commodity dependence. And it's made even worse by neglecting the mono-commodity that you depend on. And now Maduro is arming his supporters as those who stand against him are growing by the day. GM, General Motors, was seized by the Venezuelan government and there doesn't appear to be an economic nightmare end in sight as it was released recently that Maduro is now anticipating spreading healthcare to more Latin communities and raising the minimum wage by 60%. And I did a podcast on the minimum wage. It's going to be catastrophic. The, the effects of the minimum wage are catastrophic on people whose um, weight or whose ability and labor do not justify the minimum wage. And the article ends off, this is a hard sneeze away from communism if it's not considered such already and should serve as a stark reminder to the people of the world that the redistribution of wealth, vast state control, and that a vigorous focus on framing what is best for the greater good has and always lead to bloodshed, starvation, and for suffering for those involved. The article ends there, and I want to provide some examples of this. Look what happened in China with the Great Leap Forward. There was a famine, mass starvation, millions of people died. Look what happened with the expropriation of land without compensation that occurred within Zimbabwe. Five million Zimbabweans fled to South Africa as a result. The Zimbabwean dollar lost a lot of value and inflation was off the charts. Now we see what happened in Venezuela. And this was all in the name for the greater good. And now South Africa is going down that path. The ruling party wants to implement the National Democratic Revolution. They want to take over health care. They want to take over um, private property and private property is essential for economic growth if you do not protect private property rights you're not going to get economic growth you're just going to get famine poverty and, and and less innovation and less freedom most importantly so please people when governments say they're going to give you something for free 
when parties say they're going to make this more affordable, trust me, it's only a political ploy. They cannot do something like that because whenever they do, they interfere, they create negative incentives and it creates a lesser supply of those commodities that they want to provide more easily, which will increase the price and therefore it becomes less accessible all because of arbitrary intervention into industries. The government can't do something like that. But yet again, people still insist on pushing this. The EFF are not, they're not praising Venezuela anymore, but yet they're still pushing socialism. It's ridiculous. They're pushing for this thing, even though it has failed. Let me just read that last sentence of of that article again. It reads, This is a hard sneeze away from communism, if it's not considered such already, and should serve as a stark reminder to the people of the world that the redistribution of wealth, vast state control, and that of a vigorous focus on framing what is best for the greater good has and will always lead to bloodshed, starvation, and suffering for those involved. And the worst thing is this, is that those people who implement those policies will never, ever face the negative outcomes of those policies because they have the resources and the abilities to avoid those negative outcomes hitting them. So if NHI gets into place, and people have to wait in long lines to get to be seen by a doctor, or people have to wait for months to get specialist treatment because the the period of referral can be so long with this universal health care. When government officials get sick, oh, they're going to go to those countries where it's working well, where the health system hasn't been raided by the government. That's what's going to happen. When our universities fail, what's going to happen? The government officials, they're going to take their kids and they're going to send them to universities in other countries. That's what happens. When there's no supply of goods and services, these guys have got the money to buy their goods and services outside of the country. If there's no supplies of goods, They'll just go to another country and get their supplies, their supplies of goods and consume them because they have the ability to avoid the negative effects of the policies that they implement. This is why socialism is not good. It doesn't work. It creates less of everything by promising people that they will get enough or that they will get everything if you allow the government to handle the economy. The government cannot handle the economy. The economy is complex. Um, There's a lot of combinations and permutations involved that a single body cannot just determine what's best for it. By controlling prices, by taking over industries, or by taking over the Reserve Bank, by, you know, making things free can't because again what does it lead to bloodshed starvation and suffering of those involved 
This is why I don't like socialism, people. Socialism is evil. The idea that you're entitled to certain things that can be easily produced in a free market at a very low price, the idea that you're entitled to it is foolish. Because when it becomes an entitlement, there's going to be less of it. When it's treated as a commodity, there's more of it. So that's my rant on socialism. And now onto the good stuff. Okay, so there's another article that was written by a man by the name of Jorge C. Carrasco. And uh, he wrote this article is actually on freethepeople.org. And the article is titled How Free Market Capitalism made Chile the richest Latin American country. It was written on October 25th, 2018. So it's a recent article. And I won't lie, it, it, it just brings me great joy to read this article to you to show you how free market capitalism works and why it should be implemented and why South Africa should move away from this national democratic revolution and rather focus on trying to free up the economy so that, can, so that there can be more prosperity in the economy and that people can actually experience um, greater success and easier lives as a result of this. Okay, so the article begins. In the 1970s, Chile was a country devastated by Salvador Allende's interventionist policies. The socialist government had destroyed the economy and destabilized society, leaving the nation in complete social economic ruin, compounded by the lack of individual freedoms. Given the worrying situation, not surprisingly, the Chilean economy was moribund and other Latin American countries such as Mexico, Venezuela and Argentina easily surpassed their standard on human development. This led to a profound social unrest and in 1973, the takeover by the armed forces put an end to the Marxist era but established the military regime in the nation ahead of Augusto Pinochet. So there's a quote that uh, so basically, the article is written in October, and uh, there's a quote in the article, it's written in bold, it reads the following. This month, Chile commemorates 30 years since the plebiscite that showed the will of the people to put an end to Pinochet's dictatorship in 1988. Two years later, in 1990, the general officially handed over power, leaving behind an ambiguous legacy, lauded by foreign analysts for the economic reforms he embraced. Pinochet had also trodden a path of human rights violations as tortures and murders, corruption and a balance of almost half of the Chilean population pushed down the poverty line. Despite of this, the national economy grew rapidly, but the military regime never extended the privilege to most of the country, which did not actually see GDP numbers reflected in the quality of life. So even though um, there was an armed force um, coup, against uh, Pinochet, um, no, not against Pinochet, I'm lying, against Allender by Pinochet. Um, I think that um, that doesn't necessarily mean that now if we're in a Marxist in economy, we need to um, use violence as a means to try and take over the government. I don't believe in doing that. I believe in peaceful, peaceful protest, peaceful negotiations, and peaceful transitions. 
um, I know many people on the left believe in violent takeovers, like the phenone, like like the guys that believe in Franz Fanon's philosophy. Um, what do you call them? Fanonianists, something like that. Fanonian philosophies. They are guys that believe that, and they believe in violence. Um, and many people on the left embrace this. And I want to just read you something from Franz Fanon. And uh, he was pretty violent. So, and some people actually believe and actually embrace his ideologies and think it's actually correct. So I'm taking this quote from um, his book um, called The Wretched of the Earth. I don't know if it's a book or a piece. And um, it reads the following. Decolonization is a violent event. It reeks of red-hot cannonballs and bloody knives. Colonialism is not a machine capable of thinking, a body endowed with reason. Rather, it is a naked violence and only gives in when confronted with greater violence. A process of exorcism, exorcism endorsing the therapeutic power of violence. The natives work is to imagine all possible methods for destroying the settler. For the native, life can only spring up again out of the rotting corpse of the settler. Yeah, that's violence for you, bro. That sounds like an act of genocide. Uh, Cult violence. Okay, just wanted to read that to you. Uh, Let me continue reading the good news. All right, so... Two years later, according to the article, two years later in 1990. uh, Okay, I already read that part. Okay. So the article continues. When Pinochet left power, Chile's GDP per capita, considering purchasing power parity, was 4,500 per year, according to the World Bank statistics. Three decades later, Chile's GDP had quintupled, making it the highest in the continent at $24,000. And a recent projection by the International Monetary Fund revealed that the country would become the first Latin American nation to pass the $30,000 barrier in the index by by 2022 if it continues with the stable growth it has so far. When the armed forces bombed the presidential palace on September 11, 1973, killing President Salvador Allende and suspending democracy for the next 17 years. Chile began to experience an abrupt investment in the current country model. The dreamed-up democratic transition to socialism promised by Allende had proven incapable of overcoming international and external pressures and government errors. And now a military military regime was was entering onto the scene. In Chile, as well as in other countries that went through dictatorships at that time, the military had a status tradition. Allender's project, however, already saw such a large participation of the state in the economy that the search to move away from everything that referred to the overthrown government also made Pinochet abandon his statist views. A collaboration of decades between the Faculty of Economics of the Catholic University of Santiago and the University of Chicago made the military government board of that time decide to give an opportunity to the young disciples of Milton Freedom, one of my favorite economists, who were being formed in the country. Throughout the entire dictatorship, the so-called Chicago boys held important ministerial positions 
leading radical measures to open up the market, make labor laws more flexible, and to privatize many different areas of the economy. You see that? Privatize many different areas of the economy. You know, um, I think um, South Africa can take a few pointers here, especially our government. They can sell companies like SAA and ESCOM and, you know, all these other companies. The article continues. Step by step, even sectors considered untouchable, such as health, education and copper exploitation, came out of the hands of the state or at least were shared with private investors. So... Hope the government is listening to this because if uh, South African government would actually decide to sell some of these uh, state-owned companies, we would see greater growth. Okay, article continues. This large number of reforms made by the Chicago boys paved the real path for the country's economic social development. One of the most prominent was pension reform, moving from a public system to one of individual or private capitalization reducing the burden of taxes and spending and increasing savings and investments while also producing a 50 to 100% increase in retirement benefits. Also, the changes to the business taxation model were part of the magic solution. Before the reforms, retained earnings used to be taxed at about 50%, but the tax rate dropped to 10% in 1984. Despite the fact that it has not remained at that low level in recent years, the rate has remained below 20%. So the tax system is not a major obstacle to production and, com and companies are free to invest more. So in South Africa, recently, um, after this whole fees must fall protest, our VAT increased from 14% to 15%. VAT is value-added tax. So you can see when the government tries to gain more control, They'll always try to increase your taxes. Now, of course, I mean, in Chile, there have been changes to the tax rate um, over the years. I understand that. And it's not always due to government control. But especially if you want to support a lot of these social safety net programs, you're going to demand more from your citizens. And at some point, your citizens may even push back. Okay. Aside from expanding foreign currency freedom, Chile also improved its score on free trade across borders. Tariffs on exports formerly on onerous or so, sorry. Tariffs on exports, formerly an onerous obstacle, were largely eliminated, allowing foreign competition to enter the market. As a result, Chile's exports rapidly doubled between 1985 and 1989, a path that continues today. The, the regulatory burden was reduced during the period as well. The World Bank reports that it used to take up to 27 days to set up a new company in Chile. It now takes seven days. Investments increased from 11.3% of GDP in 1982 to 20.3% in 1989. National savings also increased during that, period, during that same period, from 2.1% of GDP to 17.2%. As companies had more freedom to expand and develop, Chile had more innovations with higher profits and savings. The Chilean miracle recorded annual GDP growths in the order of 78 to 9.9%. Guys, in South Africa, we just got out of a recession and we had a growth rate of 2.2%. And I don't even think that's going to be sustainable, but I could be proven wrong. 
Just I'm just letting you know what free market capitalism does. All right. So just to read that again, the Chilean miracle recorded annual GDP growth in the order of 7.8 to 9.9 percent per year between 1977 and 1980. And despite the acceleration of the economy, inflation was falling. Now in Venezuela, inflation was going up from triple digits. Inflation was at 508% in 1973 to 30 to 40% per year. With the end of customs barriers and with greater purchasing power, the richest third of the population experienced an unprecedented explosion in consumption and imports. Since the beginning of the 2000s, the Chilean government has used an anti-cyclical economic policy, which seeks to leave public spending less linked to market volatility, especially in relation to copper prices. Within the Chilean fiscal responsibility law, public spending remains largely unchanged at times when the market is favorable, so that the government has the resources to continue expanding social investments during the lean cow seasons. This prevents an eventual boom from being used for short-term political gains, generating surplus for future administrations, as happened in other countries of the region. Today, Chile is considered the third freest country in the region of the Canada and the United States, and in the 20 and 20th in the world, according to the Heritage Foundation's 2018 Index of Economic Freedom. And the free market has proven in Chile that its formula is the most efficient way to help even little Latin American nations to escape poverty and find a right path to a better well-being and human development. So talking about the Heritage Foundation's 2018 Index of Economic Freedom, they have some interesting placements, okay? So in the world, number one, it's Hong Kong. Hong Kong used the same policy as Chile, um, and they gained a lot over the years. And now they're number one. Um, number two, it's Singapore. Singapore, the same thing. Singapore also freed up their markets. Um, I put up a tweet the other day. Well, not even a tweet. It's actually a, uh, a photo on Facebook the other day. And it's quite an interesting photo. Uh, it was um, post, well, it's not even a photo. It's actually a photo of a tweet by someone by the name of Solonomics. Very, very interesting guy to read about. He's, uh, I love his Twitter. Um, I always look forward to reading it every day. And um, I got to say, uh, he, he's done a you know, great job at actually speaking about the country and so forth. But I'm just trying to find this tweet here. I don't think I can find it. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, what he was saying was that in the, you know, when 50 years ago, uh, Singapore was a small fishing town. And now today it's like a powerhouse economy all because of economic freedom that's all so guys you know there are examples of how south africa can improve but we're not using those examples because of these ridiculous left-wing philosophies of hating the west rejecting capitalism because it's from the west so therefore it must be rejected 
which is foolish. It's costing people their lives. Why can't we just use what works as opposed to just relying on these ridiculous left-wing philosophies that never seem to work? So, just looking at these rankings here, South Africa is actually number 77. 77, right? And, um, you know, and if you look at the top six, just want to give you the name. It's Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, number four, Switzerland, and Austria, and Ireland. So, it looks like if you want to move to another country, maybe you can go to Ireland. Anyway, so, um, South Africa is rated number 77. And according to the Heritage Foundation, it's moderately free. Moderately free. So we're okay. We're okay. But it's going to get worse anyway, um, given this, these new ridiculous uh, policies such as expropriation of land without compensation and also national health insurance. Then there are countries that are considered mostly unfree. And there are African countries like Tanzania, Kenya, India, Pakistan, Zambia, Egypt, Laos, Gambia, Malawi, Cameroon, Madagascar, um, even Brazil is even there. Maldives, Burundi, Liberia, you know, whoa, this is Swaziland, Ghana. My goodness, Guinea-Bissau, Madagascar. So, well, the, the, there's a lot of African countries here. Cam- oh, I think I mentioned Cameroon. Then there are repressed countries. Now, the repressed countries are actually the bottom 20 countries. So, just want to give you the African country. Africa dominates that um, category. There's Niger, Sudan, Chad, Central African Republic, Angola, uh, Togo, Mozambique, uh, Republic of Congo, Eritrea, Equatorial Guinea, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is actually one, at number 174. And shockingly enough, Congo is actually <laughs> lower than Zimbabwe. I thought it would be the other way around. But there's also Eritrea as well. And then the, uh, Algeria is at number 172. So, and you won't believe, well, actually you will believe, the countries that occupy the bottom two positions of the Heritage Foundation's Index of Economic Freedom are Venezuela and North Korea. Interesting. The countries that practice socialism faithfully, the countries that practice socialism correctly, are the ones that are at the bottom of the Heritage Foundation's Economic Uh, economic freedom index right at the bottom so people hear the results socialism doesn't work capitalism works it works chile's chile's um rise is testament of that and now they're ranked 20 they are ranked 20 in the world in terms of economic freedom the united arab emirates on number 10 Wow. South Korea, 27. Japan, 30. Israel, 31. I know that's going to trigger a few folks. Israel, 31. Mauritius. You won't believe this. I went to Mauritius in September. 
Mauritius is ranked 21 in the world in terms of economic freedom because they realized what's worked. They have encouraged people to invest in Mauritius financially and they've given good tax benefits. And that economy is growing. The developments that are occurring there are very good. So guys, if Mauritius is practicing it, and I think, are, are they the highest African country? I'm just looking here. I just want to check. Um, okay, I'm just looking, looking. Yeah, they are the highest African country in the economic index. I mean, in the economic freedom index. Highest. Because they know what works. And the countries that practice socialism, where are they? Right at the bottom. North Korea, Venezuela. What more evidence do you need, people? What more evidence do you need? I just hope that uh, this podcast has shed some light on issues on why capitalism is better than socialism. If you like this content and if you appreciate it, again, you can support me on Patreon on a monthly basis or you can do a one-time donation on PayPal. You can tip me on PayPal. But again, if you cannot support me financially, it's not the end of the world. You can always share this podcast with your friends, family members, whoever. And spread the knowledge on why we need to have a more freer South Africa and a more freer economy so that we can have better prosperity for everybody. I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody for the support. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the plays. I appreciate the comments. I appreciate the rebuttals. And I appreciate the debates that stem off as a result of these podcasts. Okay, I hear sirens outside. I don't know why there's sirens. And don't worry, they're not coming after me. Um, I'm a law-abiding citizen. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this podcast, everyone. And uh, I hope you have a good Christmas and a happy new year. And I will see you next year. Okay, enjoy. Enjoy.